All right, if you would, for one more time, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Ruth just before 1 Samuel, just after the book of Judges in our Old Testament there. We, we bring this book this morning to a close, and uh, as Gardner has already mentioned, one of the reasons we're looking at some of these more Christ-centered themes, especially O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, those types of songs, is because the, the last uh, five verses of Ruth, they end as a genealogy. Now, sometimes you may wonder, is there any value in preaching that? And, and yes, there is, because those things speak. They don't just speak of, of themes, but we've got to remember that those genealogies, they represent real people. They represent real lives that God, in this particular context, saw fit to preserve for an express reason. Now, sometimes those reasons are, are maybe complex, and sometimes those reasons may be simple. But there's a reason here when you look at this genealogy, this is not the only place you find this list of names that we see uh, captured this morning, recorded in biblical history. We will see those same names again in Matthew's gospel when the lineage of Christ is being laid out and establishing who Jesus is in His humanity. And so I I dare say, I, I don't think the author of Ruth had a full sense of what was coming down the pike. And yet, the author of Ruth does record for us a slice of genealogical truth that ultimately comes back to bear witness again in the Messiah. And so, when we think about this list of names, it's not just a list of names. It's easy to view it that way. It's easy to just kind of read over it and think, okay, these are the parts of Scripture we skip because there's just not much there, right? Uh, it's either First or Second Chronicles. I don't remember off the top of my head, but they have like 12 chapters of genealogies. And, and, I, and I, will, I, will, I will not hold you too accountable if you just skim through those, because some of those names are, are real tongue twisters. This one, and I'm not saying that's not important. It absolutely is. This one is especially important. And this morning, we're going to take some time to walk through it, because there are some themes here I think are worth mentioning. We've, we've seen Ruth be destitute. We've seen Naomi be destitute. We've seen them deal with death and, and, and famine and hardship and pain and loss. And now, now this genealogy, what it says to us is, is that was not for nothing. That had purpose in God's economy that wrought something phenomenal, wrought something that spans and ripples out through to eternity, and so that the pain of Ruth and Naomi is not wasted, and God used it to draw people to Himself. And so, without further delay, we turn our attention now to these last five verses of the book of Ruth, chapter 4, starting at verse 18. We will read 222. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So as the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank you. This is rich. It may seem mundane. It may seem ordinary. 
but herein captured is something exceedingly extraordinary, something that captures what it means for our God to be faithful. And so, Father, we come to this list hungry and expectant that you will feed us deep, rich truth, truth that transforms who we are. And so we ask that you do that. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, amen. You know, at some point in our lives, and, and usually it, it comes in, in math, mathematics or math courses, we are taught that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, right? That uh, we learn that. I remember thinking we're learning that in geometry and, of course, learning that in other, in other venues in my education, that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Anytime you can just go straight from one point to another point, you've chosen the most economical path. And so whether that's in math or whether that's on a map, uh, that type of thinking, it guides us. And in a nice, tight world where everything is ideal, the shortest distance is the preferred route. In life, honestly, if I'm just talking preferentially of myself, I like the shortest distance. I'm a very pragmatic person. I think if I can get to point a, from point A to point B with as little steps as possible, I have done something really valuable. But in God's economy, it doesn't always work that way. In fact, in God's economy, it almost never works that way. Because, see, God is not about economizing our steps. It's all about the journey. It's not just about getting to this point, this fixed point over here. It's about how you get there and what happens in the telling of the tale as you go. What do we have to live through? What do we have to experience? Sometimes God leads us down the most winding path imaginable because only through the bends and winds and switchbacks and cuts and stalls and obstacles do we really see what it is that God wants us to learn. Brad, what is that? What is it that God wants us to learn? In every situation, I don't know, but here's one thing I do know. In every situation, what God wants us to learn is He is faithful and we can trust Him. And sometimes those bends, those switchbacks, those obstacles, those, those little uh, paths that kind of come back around, they seem so uneconomical. And yet those are the places where we tend to learn the best lessons. I think it was one of my seminary professors who wrote a book, uh, Ligon Duncan. Some of you will know that name. Grace grows best in winter. Life lessons are learned best when the road is not as straight as we'd like, but when it has bends and turns. We see this in Ruth. Ruth is instructive for us on many levels, right? We've seen clearly that God is faithful to live with and for His people. We see this come to fruition in Ruth. Despite our own sin, despite our own rebellion, despite our own malcontent, that God works in and through us for His own glory and for our good. And it doesn't always feel good. That's the thing. Right? That's, the, that's the idea we have to battle as people, as human beings. And I, and I would just say Americans, but I think it's bigger than that. I think human beings in general would just prefer to feel good. And yet, God wants us to do something even more. He wants us to be transformed. In the valley of pain, it seems easy to think that the Lord is not with us. It even may appear that way sometimes. But here's the thing. We were created, you and I, in the image of God. 
We were created to live with and for God. We were created for a good end. We were created to not simply exist, but to live. And beloved, to live is to experience pain. And to experience pain is to grow. And to grow is to mature. And to mature is to be transformed. And to be transformed is exactly what God has created us to be, transformed more and more into His image. Now, I wish there were an easier way, personally. I would love if we could minimize the pain as much as possible and praise God when He does. But we've learned from Ruth, you've learned in life, that's not God's plan, typically. Typically, the pathway is difficult. God is shaping us in those moments, and He's leading us to glory. So God doesn't always design the shortest distance, right, for us. Sometimes He does, and when He does, can we, just, can we agree that, hey, man, I want to be more aware when God gives me a really short distance and I get from point A to point B and it's relatively painless? Let's pause and praise God and invite other people to praise God with us because in those moments, God has given us a gift, a gift of a moment where we get to experience a great deal of joy without a great deal of heartache. Because those things are worth celebrating. But here, can I tell you this too, though? Let me tell you this. When we get from point A to point B, and it's been exceedingly painful, that there have been many days we have gotten up and thought, I don't know if I can do this another minute. And yet we keep going another minute, and then another hour and then another three hours, and then another day, and then another day and a half, and then we make it to the end of the week, and we find relief, and we look back, and we say, that was not a short distance that was filled with heartache, and yet I was there, and I am here. Praise God. Because I want for us to understand that Ruth teaches us in both settings to praise God. Not because it's easy, not because it's been fun, and not because we have no sense of tragedy or lament or mourning. We should lament. We should mourn. We should recognize tragedy for what it is. But when we come through it, however hard it may be, and we look back, beloved, we have a reason to rejoice. We've come through another trial. And every trial we come through if we could pause to thank God, I wonder what that might do to our hearts. I'm learning this lesson slowly, but I'm learning this lesson to see God's grace even when it's been painful. This book concludes with a genealogy, and it does have something worthwhile to teach us. There is something here. This list of names is not meaningless. It's not just something to pass over. As I said a moment ago, it shows God's faithfulness and covenant love. Every soul mentioned here is a reminder that God has a covenant love. We just sang about it that does not let his people go, that does not let his people go, that sticks with you. You may not know who Aminadab is. It doesn't matter. You may not know who Nashan is. You know what? I don't either. I don't know much about all Aminadab and Nashan. They're, I mean, they're not raking in a lots of historical mentions other than the fact that they are connected with, with Judah, they're connected with David, they're connected with Jesus. But what that means is, is that God preserves a line, and it goes all the way back, all the way back to Abraham. Remember now, in the garden, God tells the woman that her offspring will be at enmity, at war with the seed of the serpent. He's going to bruise her, crush the serpent's head, and the serpent's going to bruise his heel. Not heel, 
heel, heel. Alabama comes out every so often. His heel. And we see this laid out in these names. So these names have value for us for that. But what I love about this, this is a catalog of very ordinary people. I mean, it's cool to read about them because they're famous to us. We're Christians. They're in our book. But Aminadab, how famous is he really? If you didn't have the Bible, what would you know about Aminadab? Not a thing. You don't know much about him with the Bible. Salmon. What, what, what would make Salmon stand out to you? You remember who Salmon was? He was the husband of Rahab. Rahab the Canaanite. Rahab the, the harlot, the woman of the night, the woman who was rescued by the God of Israel and had her sins made white as snow, was then the wife of this man, Salmon, who became a memory in the history and the annals of Israel. You know what that tells you? One of the things this tells us, and you get this one for free, this is not even in the sermon, that we are never past redeeming, that God can reach us in our most desperate hours, Rahab, and say, sister, daughter, you're mine. You don't live this way anymore. You're mine. And if all we get from that genealogy is that idea, then, beloved, it's worth it. It's worth it to read it. It's worth it to praise God when you come across Hezron and, and Perez and, and Salmon and, and Obed and Jesse and David for those reasons alone. But there's more that we can rejoice for this morning. So this morning, there's one idea I want to see, one main idea. There's going to be a few points under that, but an extraordinary God uses ordinary people to change the world. And this is not a feel-good, try to pep talk about, so go out there and change the world. This is just a reminder that this extraordinary God that we worship takes people just like you and me in history, and he uses those people to change the world. How? <laughs> By being faithful in their own little contact, context where they were and where we are. And so when we, when we look at this, there's some ideas that I'm going to run over this morning that kind of how that this highlights. So under this idea that God does, or an extraordinary God does use ordinary people to change the world, there's this first reminder to us when we look at this list of names that God works in the details of life, that God does work in the details of life. And so that when you look at this list of names, one of the things that has to remind us and make us think about is that God is actively working in our lives, and it's seen in the smallest little details. There's little things. If you, can go, if you can go back in your life and you think about little things that seem so little in your mind in history, but you look at that moment, those little things that just happened, and all of a sudden, it has made a ripple effect throughout your life. We can do that in positive ways. We can do that in negative ways. The smallest decision, the smallest action can change a life, both positively and negatively. So when we think about our lives, that God is working out in these smallest details, this genealogy starts. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. I'm going to stop right there. What, what we're looking at is you've, you've got a genealogy that starts in Perez, who is the product of Judah and Tamar, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. Starts with Perez and it goes to David, and it's each, each, of these, each of these names is showing us a crucial step in God's covenant. 
And when you look at Perez, you know what that reminds us of? It reminds us that God's history is not always ideal and whitewashed. We don't look at this perfect little story, this great little collection, this anthology of stories that are perfectly tell of these great characters. There's some scoundrels in there. Judah was not an always an upstanding guy. Judah's sons were not always upstanding guys. And so when you see Paris's name on there, let me remind you, Judah's son had married Tamar. Keep in mind now, four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Three of them are Gentiles. Tamar, a Canaanite. Rahab, a Canaanite. Ruth, a Moabite. And there's Mary, who's of the line of David. So in this pristine messianic line, you have three Gentile women, two of whom had question, very questionable character. What does that remind us of? That God redeems as far as the curse is found. God is not waiting for us to be perfect to rescue us. He's coming in our deepest imperfections. That's one thing. So you've got Tamar, who ends up having an, a, a, relation, a very inappropriate relationship with her own father-in-law that produces Perez. Now, Perez... Perez and Zerah, born to Tamar, Perez becomes of the line of the Messiah. So they're not giving us this perfect, this picture-perfect mythology of this pristine line. It has got rinks and bumps, rinks, <laughs> wrinkles, not rinks. Right when I said that, I was picturing people skating in the 80s. Wrinkles and bumps, not skating rinks, wrinkles and bumps all through it. And so it's not ideal. It's not whitewashed. But what does it show us? It shows us God's goodness in the midst of our own fallenness. What does it show us? At the risk of sounding cliche, that God can bring greatness out of the ashes of disaster. It looks like disaster. It looks like disaster. And God raises up something beautiful out of it. What are these names? What are paras? What does it tell us? God, God's a preserving God. He preserves people. He preserves His promise. He makes sure that His promise does not fail. And we know what I love about it is the watchers, the rescuers, the heroes look a lot like you and me. They struggle with sin. They make horrific mistakes. They do and say dumb things. And God's reminder is that He redeems, not these people. Well, this list ends with David, it starts with Perez, it ends with David. We, we realize David was a great king in Israel, and by great, I don't mean that David was perfect either. You look at his life, and it's also a litany of mistakes. But what that, what the mention of David here gives us a little bit of clues as to when the book of Ruth might have been written. So, so long after the events, or let me just say this, after the events, the mention of David. Now, remember, Ruth, written in the time of the judges, when there was no king in Israel and each did what was right in his own eyes, Ruth, written to mention David to remind us that better days are coming, that better days would come by decree and plan of, the God, of God, of the God of heaven. And so David becomes this great king that God was preparing this king through Ruth and and Boaz, before the people wanted a king, before they were asking for a king, God was preparing a man whom would be called a Messiah, by the way, in the Old Testament, that is just simply anointed one, a savior of sorts, a deliverer. 
an imperfect deliverer, but a deliverer nonetheless. That through this one David, the pieces are coming together. David would be anointed. God would pronounce an eternal covenant through David because David's line would be the line of the true king of Israel. What we can't understand or the readers do know, but what the original audience of Ruth might or could not know is that this is leading to something much larger than itself, much bigger than David. And so we're getting a picture when we see all these generations from Perez and to Obed and to David, we're getting God's intervention into the story. God's intervention in the story. Why don't you think about, again, let's consider Perez's lineage. He comes from Tamar, who has this illicit relationship with her father-in-law to produce an heir. And then you have Obed, who comes from this Moabite who had been barren up to this point, who is married to Boaz, and they have Obed. And then you have David. It's so easy for us to always think of David as the hero. But you remember when Samuel went to anoint the king, they looked at all six of David's brothers, and Samuel kept saying, surely it's this guy. And the Spirit said, no. And finally, the youngest He was ruddy and handsome. That's what the Scriptures say. But the youngest, most insignificant of Jesse's sons comes strolling up. That's the one. Because God was taking what is weak and imperfect and using that as His instrument to be His Redeemer and Savior. It's beautiful. This beautiful picture of God's testimony of love for His people is seen in the ways in which He preserves His promise. And so, this list of names, on the outset, our hope is that God actively pursues His people until we're His. I remember now, Ruth was a foreigner. Shows God's love for the nations, right? It shows this winding path back to Yahweh by this foreigner who is very unlikely. You could say the same thing about Rahab. You could even say that about Tamar in some degree or another. But Ruth for sure. Boaz, you have this picture of this faithful man laboring in Israel. And he has, what's, he has that most important trait, that Hebrew word that I mentioned so often, chesed, steadfast love. That's the descriptor of Boaz. And he applies it to this foreign woman named Ruth. And God uses that steadfast love to change the world. That is not an overstatement. That is not sensationalism. That is not an exaggeration. Beloved of God, that is exactly what the Scriptures teach. God takes disaster, famine, barrenness, hopelessness, bitterness by Naomi, a feeling of emptiness. He takes all these things, and in the midst of them, in the midst of the sin of the people of Israel, He brings out something beautiful and good. So often you'll hear people talk about senseless evil. And I'm indebted to Tim Keller on this one because he has a great little essay on senseless evil in his book, The Reason for God, which is a fantastic read. However you may feel about whatever certain statements he's made or he made before he went to be with the Lord is neither here nor there. That book is fantastic. But he's got this this real paragraph about the senseless evil and how in God's economy even our evil isn't senseless if God is truly in control. If God is truly in control, 
We might not like it. We don't want want to approach evil and go, yay! But we can't ultimately call it senseless because God is in control and He's working something. And you see this at work in Ruth. All the things that come together that bring Ruth and Boaz to the point of where they are, we might want to call it evil, but it's not senseless. It's very determined. It's very intentional. It's very personal. And so God uses this disaster to rise, to raise up people. And so when you look at this genealogy, one of the things we take away from it is God can take what appears to be bad and work it for our good. That God can take what appears to be common and and evil and wicked and empty and bitter and disastrous and destitute and work it for our good. And it's powerful. Some of us need to hear that because it's so easy to get in the valley and think you're stuck there. It's so easy to get in that valley and think there's, there's no hope there. It's only despair. And why would God, if God really loved me, why would He put me here? Well, beloved, that's because we can't see the end. We can only see the next hill in front of us. We have no idea what's beyond that hill. And then we have no idea what's beyond the next three hills. Because God doesn't call us to think about the next three hills. He just calls us to think about the one in front of us. Well, we trust Him to get us over that hill. There's a very apt illustration from Lord of the Rings that I will not use right now. So when we look at this, all, all the details of life are important because God uses them all to produce righteousness in us. You know, there's a lot of my testimony that makes me sad and ashamed. Some of the things that I did, the way that I've treated people, the things that I did to hurt people, And I've had somebody ask me, what would you change if you could change it? I would love not to hurt people, but I wouldn't change much because through all the pain and valleys and hardship, God brought me to this moment and the people around me, he brought to their moment. And it took a lot of cutting and brokenness and weeping and begging and pleading and change to get to where we are. There's a lot of us who may feel regret that's okay. If you don't feel some measure of regret, you're not thinking deeply enough about your life. And yet, those instances have brought us to the place where we are, the very place that God wants us to be, to do the work that He wants to do. And so, Ruth teaches us that. That's one of the things. So, God is working in those details. Well, another idea that we get from this particular genealogy is that covenant faithfulness, God's covenant love, it ripples out forever. When we look at this list, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashan, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, we can't help but think of Ruth with Boaz. And so Ruth, when we talk about Boaz having this chesed, this steadfast love, so does Ruth. Ruth has it for Naomi, Ruth has it for Boaz eventually. In fact, this is a steadfast love that changes human history along with with Boaz. So without Ruth's love, here's what we think. When we're speaking purely in human terms, right, God can do what God can do. But without Ruth's love, there is no Obed, there is no Jesse, there is no David, at least not in the way that we got them. God used this Moabite woman, insignificant, barren, this insignificant woman to have Obed, who would have Jesse, who would have David, 
Who would have Jesus and who would save many lives? I've said this before, and it bears repeating. When you look at the book of Ruth, one of the things that you can't walk away from is the idea that kindness and grace are prevalent themes in this book. Sometimes it's difficult to extend grace to someone because grace is letting or is, is extending a love that covers over sins, even though sometimes those sins are pretty hurtful. But what Ruth teaches us about kindness, kindness is an act of significance in our lives that we can employ, and it's never insignificant. It's never insignificant to be kind. And that's exactly one of the things, or at least two of the things that we walk away from Ruth learning is that kindness and grace are not insignificant gestures. And the mention of Boaz, Boaz, you can't think of Boaz without thinking of Hesed, I said a while ago, but also redeeming love that leads to a a greater redemption. Ruth and Boaz, they had no idea. They had no way to fathom what was going to happen through their union, through their relationship, and yet God did. This is why what we do matters. We're not saved by what we do, but what we do matters. God is using those on a trajectory of covenant love and faithfulness within the family of God. And when we think about what is the best policy for us as believers, well, the best policy for us as believers is committed love, genuinely. Husbands and wives should be committed in their love for one another, and that's not always easy. The family of God should be committed for love for one another. Because, see, Ruth and Boaz couldn't fathom the depths of what that was going to mean and how that would ripple out, and neither can we. We have no idea. We don't know what our love and grace and charity and kindness is doing in God's people. Now, here, you hear me say that. I want to be clear. Love and kindness is also confrontation. It's saying things that need to be said in a loving, kind, humble way. So this is not to say we can't ever say challenging things to one another. It's that we say challenging things to one another as a fruit of our love for each other. It's easy to be mean. It really is. It's easy to be mean and disassociate yourself from other people. The hard part is being honest and being loving, being kind and being charitable. Because, see, those those go against the nature of our flesh. Kindness is usually costly. Not, Not a great cost, but it's costly. When we look at this list... Specifically, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. Remember now, Naomi said that she went away full and came back empty. The fullness that Naomi really experienced, it goes beyond Boaz, it goes beyond Ruth. But why did she experience fullness at all? Because Ruth was faithful. Because God was faithful, primarily, humanly because Ruth was faithful. And so what can we walk, what can we look at this and say, what is one good takeaway? Well, never despise the power of committed covenant faithfulness. Never. Never despise the power of committed covenant faithfulness, of promise, promise-based love, of loving in Christ. Because it has power, it has teeth, it has meaning, it adds value. Because it's through that type of love, that type of covenant relationship that God works healing in your life, in mine, and in the family of God. 
And so that when we think about the faithful life as the life that lives trusting in the Lord and His goodness and loving people well. You know, I don't do it perfectly. Nobody is. I'm not. I don't. But it's got to be our aim. Obed, Jesse, David must, has to remind us that God can do awesome things when He is the bedrock of our trust and hope. And when you step out knowing that God is going to do what God is going to do, we can obey God with abandon. Lastly, what does this list do? i tell you what it does, and this is, to me, the most thrilling thing that it does. This list and the list in Matthew and some of the other lists that you'll find in the Old, Old and New Testament, it reminds us that we, God's people, are destined for glory. We're not meant to be left alone. We're not meant to just suffer and then die. It's a very nihilistic way of looking at life. We're not not left there. We are destined for glory. God's design for His people is to glorify them with Christ, even in the unlikely events in life. As I've told you, David was called a Messiah in the Old Testament. Again, Messiah simply means anointed one, that David would come. But David's point is to point to another. Obviously, he was to be a king in Israel, and he did what he was called to do, even despite all his own sinfulness. God called him a man after his own heart. But David, biblically speaking, points us to another. And when you look at this line, there's a lot of ways you could describe it. Weak, humble, imperfect. God's God's glory is going to be shown to the world through this weak, perfect, humble line. Why? Because God is going to bring His glory to bear on it. God chooses In the Old Testament, you see this. God chooses imperfect people. In the New Testament, too, God chooses imperfect people because there's only one need to be perfect, and His name is Jesus, and He has come and was perfect and remains perfect. He gave us all the perfection we needed so that the gospel becomes the rally cry of the church, that God made Him who had no sin, who was perfect, to be sin for us, to take on our imperfections. So that in Him, this perfect one who took on our imperfections, we might know and become the righteousness of God. Gardner mentioned that a few moments ago. That that's the righteousness that God is working. This line says that none of these people, Aminadab, Nashan, Boaz, Obed, Salmon, Jesse, David, Perez, Hezron, none of them were righteous in their own right. They were dependent on God. These imperfect men came to the one who could make them perfect, and they lead us to the one who can make us perfect. And so this becomes a roadmap of reminders that, yeah, we don't know Ram or Aminadab or Nashan. What we have to know is that these people are pointing us to the one who can give us the thing that we cannot earn on our our own, which is righteousness and salvation. And so when we think about the road to glory, it is not a shortest distance type of road. It's not going to be to point A to point B very neatly. It's going to be hard. It's going to be filled with stumbling. It's going to wind a bit. There are going to be days when it's dark and we we can't see very far. And then days where the sun shines in all its glory and we see things a bit clearer. But those hardships, they don't negate the glory. They prepare us for it. And the hard path is never going to be the shortest path. 
but it is the path that brings God glory. And so the story of the Ruth is the story of God. It is the story of redemption. As it ends with this genealogy, this genealogy really of David is what it is, it's telling us a story about God. And so God wants to give His church, that is us, those who are faithful in Christ, those who call Christ Lord, His fullness, and that's the ultimate glory that awaits us all. Ruth reminds us that seasons are hard, times are destitute, people will fail us and hurt us. Ruth reminds us that we will go through seasons of life where the culture is against us, where we live surrounded by death, surrounded by hate, surrounded by injustice, that we live in poverty, surrounded by destitution, that we don't always understand why, that there are days where we wake up and say, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Call me Mara, because I'm bitter. That I was full and now I'm empty. All those things are real emotions that real Christians will really feel in God's economy. But beloved, what Ruth does is it says, take those things and put them in the grand or through the grid of God's grand narrative of despite the destitution, there is hope. Despite the death, there is life. Despite the hardship, there is joy. And it's all coming in Christ and comes in Christ again and again and again. The transformation that God works in us is extraordinary, but it's powerful that God uses imperfect, ordinary, limping, broken people along the way to see it done. And you, if you're a Christian with any time under your belt, you have been that limping, broken, ordinary Christian in somebody else's life to see it done. Beloved, we don't have to be great warriors. We simply have to be faithful, and I love that Ruth teaches us that. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word. This genealogy is so rich and simple, very straightforward. It tells us a story of your faithfulness, that you are in the details, that you do have a covenant love filled with promise, and that you are leading us to glory. That as the hymn says, we are bound for the promised land. And so, Father, we yield to you. Thank you for this rich book, this story. Thank you for leading us through it. And thank you for reminding us that in hard times, you are reigning and leading us back to yourself. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.